We're going to turn this morning to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, and as you find your place, I also bid you welcome in the Savior's name, and to all who have assembled, and for those who are watching online. So we're turning to Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 1, down to verse 10. The Lord has directed me to this portion. I must say that I did bring a a shortened version of this to the members of the session uh, one night in days gone past, and I believe the Lord would have me again turn to this. Good to be praying and thinking along the same lines, and so I've expanded it even uh, a good bit from that night. So Exodus chapter 3, we'll read the Word of God, and then we'll have a word of prayer. We'll commence our reading at verse 1. So let's hear the Word of our God. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the public reading of his word to our hearts. Let's bow in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to speak. I know we're dealing with maybe a very particular, definite subject. I don't think that the Word of the Lord has no message for you, but pray that the Lord will come and minister to every heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we wait before thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee once again for this privilege to assemble, to now place ourselves around the book of the living God. And we thank thee, O God, for the promised, the promised Holy Ghost. And I come to thee standing as a candidate for the infilling of the Spirit of the Lord. And by faith I ask thee, O God, that thou would fill me with the Holy Ghost, that I would speak as thus and thus saith the Lord, being thy messenger, O God, carrying to this people what thou would have them to hear. So, Lord, to that end I present myself afresh as a living sacrifice unto thee, that is my reasonable service. Thou art the one who has given me life, and I pray that thou wilt use the faculties of my being, that thou wilt speak to this assembled people. So, Lord, hear us now. Open every heart. Give an attentive ear. 
And may the Word come with the blessing and the accompaniment of the Spirit of the living God. For these things we pray in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen. This morning we depart from the book of Philippians as we consider the matter of adding to the Kirk session. However, as I thought about this week in reality, it's not a departure. This book, the Word of God, is one volume. And we cannot say that one part does not relate to another or that any part stands in isolation from the rest. And what were we considering the last time from Philippians chapter 2? Well, it was a highly exalted Christ, the one who accomplished redemption by his doing, by his dying, who now has been raised and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We notice something about that place to which he now occupies. He is in the place of preeminence, a place of power, a place of prayer, but also a place of prerogative. It is his right as the sole king and head of the church to give gifts to the covenant community of God's people for the ministry of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom on this earth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 at the last time, we read these words, when he ascended, uh, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and obtained and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It is Christ's right to appoint what offices, what officers he pleases in his church. It is his prerogative to place under shepherds, to oversee it, to tend and care for it. And this emphasizes the importance of what lies before this congregation and the man or the men whom God has chosen. This is Christ's church. It is precious to him. He has purchased it with his own blood, as we read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, where Paul is addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus. By reference to the blood there in that verse, we see that the church with its appointed oversight operates within the realm of God's redemptive purpose. The church's role upon earth is to glorify God and to be the instrumentality in His hand to see the redemption which Christ has accomplished applied. Applied in salvation to sinners and applied in sanctification to the saints. Now we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3. And here we really have a prime example of the Lord choosing a man to be the instrument in his hand by which he brings to pass his redemptive purpose. Here we notice the absolute right and prerogative of the Lord in selecting a man through whom redemption is applied to God's covenant people. Now without doubt, Moses... He towers over most figures in redemptive history as he is a mediator, we could say, of the old covenant, old in the sense of the administration of it, that it was different. It was through types and shadows, not another covenant, just a different dispensation of the same gracious covenant, which was from all eternity. Now, Moses, as you know, he is preserved by the Lord from certain death. He was raised in Egypt in the royal family, his early life was one of privilege and power, yet he never forgot the people to whom he truly belonged. His revulsion to an observed 
injustice had resulted in his deadly attack upon an Egyptian. And when the Pharaoh found out about this act, Moses, he fled for safety. He became a shepherd in Midian in a region that was 700 miles east of Egypt. Near providence led him to marry a daughter of Jethro with whom he would have a son. While he was there, the king of Egypt, from whom he fled, died. And we read there at the end of chapter 2 that the children of Israel lay side by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This act of remembering did not mean that God had forgotten his people. Rather, it signaled that he was about to act on their behalf, and for that he would call Moses. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, the call of Moses. And I trust that the Lord would use this message especially, especially to speak to the man or the men whom he has chosen to fill the office of a ruling elder. Now, the first thing I want to draw to your attention is Moses' encounter. His encounter. Now, this is a portion that we could spend weeks exegeting every verse, every line, every word, but we're going to look at it just simply, generally, this morning. Here we read of Moses' encounter with God. And this is what we want for the man or the man whom God has chosen. We don't want them. They don't need to have an encounter with another member of this congregation telling them that they would make a good elder. There's to be none of that anyway. They do not need an encounter with their wife if they're married, but no doubt if they're called, they will have a discussion and they will speak with such things with their wife. No, these men, they need an encounter with God. And I urge you as a congregation, brethren and sisters, to pray for that, that men would have a definite encounter with God, something like Moses had, that would leave such an impact upon them as it did with Moses. And that's something that you need to pray for, that God, that these men would have an encounter with the living God. Now, in verse 1, we read, we read quite simply, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Here was the one-time prince of Egypt. Now the son-in-law of a Midian priest, shepherding a flock. He was doing that which the Egyptians despised, as we learn in Genesis 46 and the verse 34. But this was good, honest work. He was willing to support and provide for himself and for his family. This job was not beneath him. In fact, it was a job that molded him for the task which lay before for soon he would be leading God's flock through the wilderness. This was a man that was prepared prepared by God throughout his life. Forty years in Egypt, being taught in its ways and wisdom, which was not all bad, by the way. The arts, astronomy, architecture, academia. It was the most civilized uh, nation of the day. And Moses was there, and he was learning all these things. And 40 years in the desert, learning the ways of wilderness survival. 
learning the movements and the needs of a flock. But the time had come for God to call this man. And the time eventually comes, brethren. Will you ever feel totally prepared for the office that God calls you to fill? The answer is no, but nevertheless, the time comes, and Moses' time had come. Now, we notice here that Moses did not necessarily, uh, he was not aware that his time had come. He was just going about his everyday business, for we read that he led the flock to the backside of the desert. Moses was not traveling there expecting, expecting to find God. He was expecting to find fertile pasture. Horeb is called the mountain of God only as Moses writes retrospectively, only as he looks back, because it was there that he met with God. Moses is not on some sort of religious quest or pilgrimage. He's doing something very mundane. He's out tending the flock. He's out pasturing it. He's doing what he always done. He's away on his own. We might say in the secret place, so to speak, and it's there that he is an encounter with God. And this is what we desire for the men whom God has chosen. That as they've been going about their daily routine, their daily readings, their daily devotions, and as they've been alone with God in a secret place that God would meet or has met with them. It's not that they've heard about the announcement of the elders and thought, well, you know, I need to start reading my Bible. I need to start to seek God to see if He's going to speak to me. If God will call me, I need to start going on a quest to find God. No, this happened in the everyday happenings of the life of Moses. And that indicates to me, and that tells me that God will call those, God speaks to those who have a daily walk with Him. And that's the sort of men that we want in the ruling eldership. Men who have a walk with God. Men who not hear the announcement and think, well, I need to start doing something about that. I need to go on a quest to find God. No, Moses was just going about his everyday business, not expecting it was his time, and there he had an encounter with God. Now notice it's God that takes the initiative. It's God who engages with Moses. It is the Lord who makes himself known unto this man. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, that's Moses. And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. In these verses, God reveals himself to Moses visibly by what theologians call the theophany. And this word simply means a visible manifestation of God. This is one of the modes of God's self-revealing as the Scriptures were being progressively given. But now we have the completed Word of God. And that's where God will make Himself known and is well known unto you through the Scriptures. The revelation was not simply the bush that was burning and not consumed But it was what God spoke, what He said to Moses. The Word of God is the revelation of God. When God encounters you, and I say this even if you want an encounter with God, He always encounters you by His Word. That is how He reveals Himself, His will unto you. Now some commentators, they make the comment that a bush burning 
was not uncommon in an arid desert with scorching temperatures, but Moses, he quickly discerned that there was something unusual about this bush. It was burning, but it was not consumed. This is something that grabbed his attention. Now, by way of application, there are many times that we read the Word of God, and in a sense, nothing grabs our attention. Now, it's not that reading the Word has been unprofitable, because it always cleanses, it always instructs, it always builds up our knowledge. It's a way by which we fill our minds with that which is pure and true and dispels that which is filthy and deceitful. And it's also laid up for future days. But there are times when something really grabs your attention. There is something what we might call unusual about it. Not unusual in the words or the phrases that are used, but unusual in the sense that it comes with great power to your soul. It makes an impact upon you. It causes you to stop and ponder. It intrigues you. And I asked, has this happened to you, brethren? Whoever it might be, has this happened to you in recent days? Has something grabbed the attention off your heart as you've been daily reading through the Word of God? I trust it has happened. I trust it will happen to the men whom God has chosen, that God would speak to you through His Word very powerfully, that He would get your attention. Now, I can preach, but it's God who gets your attention. And that's what needs to happen. Brethren and sisters, that's what you need to pray. That while these men read the Scripture, God would lay a hold upon them. And God would grab their attention through the Word. God begins to speak to Moses in verse 4. Let's read it. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Moses was in no doubt that God was speaking to him. The repetition of his name in God's call, it's emphatic. It makes that appeal direct and personal. The use of the name there, the use of the name shows how specifically God directed the call and that God knew Moses. You will know when God is calling you. It will be personal. Verses will be so applicable and appropriate to your own situation. And that's not even with respect to eldership there. That's in every sphere of life, child, and God. You will know when God is speaking. You will know when God is calling. To give you a personal example, and I've maybe related this before, but when I was milking cows, when I was in the parlor there, I was listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' series on the book of Ephesians, and one Monday morning, there as he came to the end of a sermon, he turned to Luke chapter 9, and he quoted from verse 59. Now, I can't remember why. And to me, it was very strange. It was right at the end. Uh, but it says there, and the Lord is speaking, and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Do you know, at that time, I was thinking about the ministry. But I also had the conflicting thought of, succession on the family farm. But the call of God came so powerfully and so personally 
to my situation that I was left in no doubt that I had an encounter with God in the milking parlor that Monday morning. See, God will make it personal to you. I was not looking for it. I was, as I said, I was listening through a series on Ephesians, and he turned to it at the end, and God had a powerful encounter with me, and I had with him in the milking parlor. And Moses responds here. He says, here am I. So much that could be brought out of this little saying. We compare it with Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 6. But we can't linger here. We can say this, Moses, he wanted to know. He was willing to hear. He was willing to hear what the Lord would say. Being willing to hear, it precedes being willing to do. And that's a good attitude to have, to be like Samuel, to say to the Lord, speak for thy servant heareth. Trust that as you came to the house of God this morning, knowing the subject that we preached upon, that you came willing to hear. That's the way you should always come to God's house, willing to hear, saying to the Lord, Here am I, have a word for me, speak on, Lord, you've got my attention. When God speaks, He draws us closer. And that's exactly what we find here in this account. Moses he begins to draw closer. But notice in verse 5 that immediately God commands Moses to stop, to stop. Now, it's not because God is unapproachable by His people. But rather, God wanted Moses that he might understand, that he might know the gravity of the situation. That he might approach God in the appointed way with due fear and godly reverence Look what the Lord said to him, Draw not nigh, verse 5, Hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. It is the presence of the Lord which sanctified that place. You know, there was nothing inherently holy about the soil or the dust upon which Moses was standing. So it is the case with any building or any place where God's people meet with him, be it the secret place either. It's the presence of the Lord that sanctifies the place, the building. That was spoken a little bit this morning in the adult Bible class. It's not the grandeur of the building. It's not the embellishment of everything that's there. It's the presence of the Lord that sanctifies the place. Now, if I may diverge a little from the subject before us this morning... Do we not long, do we not long that this meeting house would be holy ground? The presence of the Lord would fill this place, a place where God speaks to us, a place where God makes His will known to us, and that we would have that corresponding holy fear where reverence is given unto Him. That's what the shoes coming off the feet symbolized, reverence. God's presence always has the mark of corresponding reverence. Look at verse 6. Or sorry, on down verse 8 it actually is. And Moses, and Moses hid his face. Oh, sorry, it is the end of verse 6. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Holy fear. Awe. An abject humility 
those are the marks of the presence of the Lord. Not, it is not uncontrolled laughter or barking like a dog. Those are the things that mark the presence of the Lord. God goes on to identify himself to Moses as the God of his father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes known to Moses in the verses following that he's a great concern for God's covenant people. God was calling Moses because he had a concern for his people. And God puts elders as overseers because he has a concern for his people. This whole process of electing men to the Kirk session, it's testimony to the love and care that God has to your souls, brethren and sisters. View it in that way. Approach the 28th in that manner. This is the outworking of God's love to its church. Therefore, be involved. Be at the vote. God has a concern for you. God, in His wisdom, He uses the instrumentality of men to accomplish this His will. And in this case, He was calling Moses to be a, a human mediator, to be a deliverer uh, and a leader for His people. Verse 10, there's the call. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee. I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God Himself remained the ultimate deliverer. He was the one upon whom all these plans depended, but they would be worked out through Moses. God desires that His church is nourished, that His church is protected and watched over, and He does that through the teaching and the ruling elders. Yet He is the one who ultimately does it through them. Human instruments, they are replaceable, and often in the passage of time they need to be replaced. Our Kirk session has known the loss of good godly men who have not yet been replaced. But remember this, whoever it is whom God calls and whom God uses, it is the Lord who is the great shepherd. It is He who is the one who nourishes and protects His covenant people through the means of elders. Moses' encounter. Secondly, this morning, Moses' excuses. His excuses. Now we find with a number of men that are called in Scripture, it's not long before the objections and the excuses rise up within the heart. And that's what we find with Moses. It's what we find with men like Gideon. And you should not be surprised if this happens to you or this is happening to you. Yes, Moses had a willingness to hear. Here am I. What are you going to say? Speak on, Lord. You've got my attention. But when he heard what the Lord had said, well, then his heart and his mind began to go into overdrive. There was many, there's many reasons, there's many excuses why people uh, do not do the will of God. And, and Moses here was bringing them all to the fore. Fear, doubt, unwillingness, unbelief. All these things play upon the soul. And so it was in the case of Moses. He was no different. He gives five excuses. And I want to bring them before you quickly. These excuses that don't only relate to men whom God has chosen to the office of the ruling elder, but they often are put forward by all of God's people to certain aspects of God's will. Number one, five excuses, the excuse of inadequacy. Verse 11, 
And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, in one sense, this objection, it speaks of Moses' humility. And that's a good thing, for who in and of themselves is sufficient for these things? Moses had a clear understanding of what God was asking him to do. The revelation of the will of God by the Word of God was plain. He knew this meant going back to Egypt, standing before Pharaoh, and this was truly an overwhelming task. He felt that he was inadequate. He was aware of his own personal insufficiency. And that's the right way to feel. And I trust brethren, brethren have an understanding of the magnitude and the weight of the office of the elder and all that that means. But while it's right to feel that way, it's not grounds to offer an excuse to God. Number two, the excuse of deficiency. The excuse of inadequacy, the excuse of deficiency. Verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And here we have Moses saying, Lord, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. He was afraid the people might ask him a question to which he does not have the answer. Now, this might be hard for you to believe, but no man, no man has all the answers. Deficiency of knowledge would exclude all men from the office of a ruling elder. Though it was true that Moses was deficient in knowledge, this also was only an excuse. Number three, the excuse of credibility. Chapter four in the verse one, Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. God had already promised Moses, verse 18 of chapter three, that the people would hearken to his voice. But Moses still makes his protest. Now, we might give this man a bit of credit. He's only human. There's some basis for Moses saying this if we read Acts chapter 7 and the verse 25 that previously we learned there that he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Moses is thinking here, well, you know, if they didn't understand the first time, why would they understand the second time? Why would they ever take me serious? Well, of course, there's a major difference. Moses' first attempt to be the deliverer of God's people was something that he did in his own time and with his own strength. But in the present passage here, God is commissioning Moses. And he would be going to them in the name of the Lord. That was his credibility. Moses was doubting God's Word. And you know, that's a good seedbed for every seed of excuse to spring forth. Number four, the excuse of ability. The excuse of ability. Exodus 4, in the, chapter 4, in the verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He wasn't good with words. And again, I wonder, is is there a man here that God has been dealing with 
and he's been speaking to you and you've responded to the Lord in your heart, Lord, I don't have the ability. I couldn't do what other men do. I can't speak like them in prayer on the proclamation of the Word. And this is an excuse you bring before God. Number five, the excuse of availability. Verse 13, chapter 4, And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of whom thou wilt send. Send someone else. This was not really excuse, but having run out of excuses, Moses, he reaches the point where he basically says, you know, I'm, I'm not willing. It's a serious matter to be called, but it would be a more serious matter to refuse. You know, it was good that Moses had no confidence in the flesh, but it was bad that he had no confidence in God. In view of the burning bush and the voice of God from that bush, the divine encounter, there was absolutely no reason for Moses to say to God, but, as we read there in chapter 4, but, but behold, J. H. Jayat, he said, this God has heard but from our lips a thousand times. It is a response of unbelief to the divine call. It is a reply of fear to the divine command. It is a suggestion that the resources are inadequate. It is a hint that God may have overlooked something which your own eyes have seen. End quote. John Calvin, he had a similar response to God's call. He too offered excuses his call came unexpectedly when he was passing through the city of Geneva. He was a young man, but he had already made a name for himself. His first publication of the Institutes of the Christian Religion was already made. But he had no plans, he had no interest in pastoring a church. Rather, he wanted to retire to the quiet life of scholarly pursuits. When he received a call, to the pastorate in Geneva, he refused. He, he pleaded his youth, his inexperience, his need for more training, and the fact that he was shy, therefore he wasn't suited to the office. But William Farrell, he was in that city, and he knew that these were only excuses, and he threatened Calvin with a curse of God if he preferred his studies over the Lord's work. And with that threat, Calvin became so terrified that he agreed to stay. He obeyed the call of God. Now, we're not going to threaten any. But can I say this? Make sure that excuses do not get in the way of you doing the will of God. Moses' encounter, Moses' excuses. Finally, briefly, Moses' enablement. For every excuse Moses gave, God had an answer. God would enable him. As a matter of fact, the excuses Moses gave to show his incapacity and his inadequacy were the very reasons that God called this man in the first place. That no flesh would glory save the Lord alone. Let's notice how God responds for his inadequacy. God said to Moses, back to chapter 3, verse 12, Certainly I will be with thee. I will be with thee. The issue is not who Moses is, but whose Moses is. God was sending him. God would be with him. His sufficiency would be of God. If God has called you, he will be with you. He will enable you to do that which is beyond you. 
Reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. There's human responsibility. I can do all things. But there's God's sufficiency through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul knew the enormity of the task that lay before him. And that's why he said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. See, Moses asked God, who am I? And God could have said, well, you're just a shepherd. You're an absolute nobody. But God does not tell him those things or anything about who he is. It's not about Moses. It's about God. It's not about who Moses is. It's about who God is. And God would be with him. We can do nothing without the Lord. But with him we're more than conquerors. We are able only because he is able for his deficiency. That's for his inadequacy, but for his deficiency, God said, look at verse 14, God made himself known, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. God had the answers. God had the answers. God made himself known to Moses, and God would make other things known unto him too. Moses had a lack, like us all. But there's no lack to the great I am. The self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, infinite God. God will supply your need. Whatever you lack, God will provide for his credibility. God again countered Moses' excuse. For the people didn't believe that Moses was sent from God and didn't take him seriously. They would take seriously the three powerful signs that God promised to perform through his servant. Seals would be upon Moses' calling. The evidence would be there. I don't have time to develop this. Time is going and time is gone. But the evidence will be there in the life of the one whom God has chosen. For his ability, God answered. Chapter 4, verse 11. Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seen, or the blind? Have I not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. Moses didn't have to say his own words. God would give him the words that he would have to say. The one who formed man is able to endow him with gifts. God will equip those whom he calls. For his availability or his reluctancy, we might say, God responds. He responds with righteous anger and he tells him that his older brother Aaron will serve alongside him. Moses is the man. For it's the Lord's prerogative to choose. Wasn't Moses' prerogative to choose? Moses couldn't say, Lord, you need to choose someone else. It's the Lord's prerogative to choose and there was no excuse left for Moses but to go forth at the call of God. I need to finish. We must pray that men will have an encounter with God over the coming weeks. And when the excuses come forth, and inevitably they will, they will. As you understand the gravity of the situation and the enormity of the calling, well, as those excuses come forth, that God, that God will counter them. 
and show to these men that he is able and that he will enable. This is a matter of utmost importance, congregation. This is Christ's church, and as a highly exalted one, it is his right to choose and to call. It is your right as communicant members to bring to pass the will of God by way of vote. Therefore, it is imperative that you seek the Lord for his will, for his mind. It's his right to call. It's your right to vote, to bring to pass his will. May he guide us. May he bless his word to our hearts. And may he speak very especially to brethren who sit amongst us and who feel the burden and the weight of this call. Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek the Lord to bless that word to our hearts. Father, we bow before thee. We thank thee for the one at thy right hand, the one who is the sole king and head of his church. It's not the free Presbyterian's church. It's not any minister's church. It's thine. The church which thou hast purchased by precious blood. And we thank thee, O Heavenly Father, that it's your prerogative, your right, to appoint the offices and the officers. And we pray, Lord, that there will be men that sit amongst us, and they will have a very powerful and personal encounter with God. This is what they need. Grab their attention through their daily readings and devotions. May they not escape it. May they turn aside to see. And may you continue to speak to them and make things clear. For the excuses that will come to their hearts, and they will, we have known, we have experienced them. But we thank thee, Lord, for the enablement of our God. We thank thee that thou art able to prepare and to fit and suit a man for the office. Lord, we realize that this whole process, it is an expression, it is the outworking of your care for your dear people. This is not some, uh, Lord, business endeavor Lord, this is not just to have men there elevated, Lord, to be seen by men or puffed up. Lord, this is because you care for us and because you love us and you want your word to increase more and more within our hearts and to preserve us from error and going down the wrong path. Oh, Father, Lord, we thank thee that thou hast not left us to randomly make our way through life but thou hast given structure and governance in the church of Jesus Christ. Bless the word. Bless the word, Lord, to others who are seeking thy will. It may be different matters of their lives, maybe young people. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to them, that you would call them very definitely, very particularly. And Lord, that thou would lead them in thy perfect, thy good and acceptable will. So, Lord, we pray that thou would part us with thy blessing. 
We pray, O God, that the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit will be the portion of thy people. Bring us again to thy house. Lord, may it truly be holy ground. May thy presence be here. And Lord, we pray that thou would speak to every waiting heart. We ask this all in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.